BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hermit King, The Dangerous Game of Kim Jong-un by Chung Min Lee. This is from the first chapter, Life in Earth's Paradise. Whenever a North Korean is asked by a foreign, foreign journalist or visitor what life is like inside North Korea, the reply is that the country's citizens live in an earthly paradise for one reason, the care given to them by the supreme leader. He is their father and provider. They lack for nothing, nor do they desire anything else. The supreme leader makes sure that they are totally happy. Just like the Heavenly Father in Christianity, it is the living head of the Kim family that makes everything possible in North Korea. This is a total lie, except for the super elites who are bound inextricably with the regime, including the creme de la creme of the party, armed forces, security agencies, and hard currency-making enterprises, the vast majority of North Koreans must fend for themselves. Life was not always like this in North Korea. While it's impossible to imagine today, North Korea had a higher GDP than South Korea until the early 1970s. In 2017, South Korea's GDP was 1.5 trillion, whereas North Korea's was 33 billion. Per capita GDP was $30,000 in South Korea, $1,300 in North Korea. Still, North Koreans are routinely told that South Korea is filled with beggars and only a tiny percentage of corrupt capitalists live well. The rest of the population ekes out the barest of livings in squalid conditions. Because the country is a stooge of the American imperialists, South Korean women are constantly raped by American soldiers, Pyongyang's propagandists claim, and the people are yearning for liberation by North Korea. Even the government-funded Russian international television network, RT, which has prided itself as a mouthpiece of the Putin regime, believes that North Korean propaganda has gone a step too far. A 2017 RT documentary called The Happiest People on Earth North Korea, the rulers, the people, and the official narrative offers the outside world a peek into that nation. A factory manager recounts her emotions when Kim Jong-un made an on-site inspection visit in January 2016. Quote, when the great Marshal Kim Jong-un opened the windows and walked in, we beheld his sun-like image. It was like a dream, as if I was the only one who enjoyed this great honor. She continues with straight face, the entire factory and workshop filled with sunlight when the great marshal arrived. The film crew captures a scene of students studying in the famous Kim Chak University of Technology. Since most North Korean men have to spend 10 years in the army before they can enroll at a university, male students at Kim Chak are typically in their late 20s or early 30s. One student says, thanks to the great leader and the marshal general's revolutionary course, our country became the strongest country in the world. With a big smile, the student goes on to say, all stooges who dare attack our sovereignty are our enemies. Each year, the nation busies itself preparing for the celebration of Kim Il-sung's birthday on April 15th, called the Day of the Sun. The film crew captured citizens gathering in a plaza to pledge their loyalty to Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. After they take their vows, first grade children goose-step to martial music, and the child leading the formation raises her right arm in a 45-degree salute, just like the goose-stepping members of the armed forces. A middle school orphanage official tells the film crew that the great Marshal Kim Jong-un spent two hours visiting the school. In the entrance, you see a giant mural depicting the floor plan of the orphanage. The point where Kim began his inspection is marked with a red star, and his footsteps are marked in red arrows. The entire room is devoted to pictures and relics of his visit. The red and yellow blanket that Kim touched and the white chair with the blue cushion he sat in 
are boxed in glass. Everything he touches is preserved as a holy remnant, just as was done with anything his father or grandfather touched. This is how the state wants to portray the average North Korean, filled with undying love for the Kim family, finding truth only in the teachings of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, and receiving guidance in everything from the current supreme leader, Kim Jong-un. The truth is, every North Korean has an avatar, because how the avatar behaves can mean the difference between life and death. The avatar is for public consumption, what is shown to most friends, relatives, and co-workers. A North Korean can show his or her innermost secrets to just a handful of people, perhaps immediate family members, trustworthy relatives, and best friends who have committed a common crime, like watching a South Korean movie. The dark side of North Korea, the state argues, is simply fake news, conjured up by the capitalist West and enemies of the state. But right beneath the veneer of 25 million smiling North Koreans lies a darkness that fills every square meter of the DPRK. There are at least four gulags in North Korea, where between 200 and 300,000 political prisoners and their families are held. Officially, the state says there are no political prisoners. An Moishol was a guard in Camp 22, no longer in operation, and one of the few guards who escaped to South Korea. He was trained to see prisoners not as human beings, but as animals. In fact, prisoners got smaller rations than the dogs reared by guards. The book, The Hermit King by Chung Min Lee. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Donald Trump said in Iowa, he went to Iowa and had a good-sized rally, and he said that the Democrats want to kill your cows. Now, there's a lot of cows in Iowa. I don't know if there's more cows than people, but there's a lot of cows in Iowa. It's a very, you know, it's a rural farming state. But then he got into this kind of, you know, what Hitler said about the Jews' territory. He said, they want to kill your cows and you're next. They want to wipe Iowa off the map. We need to take this kind of stuff seriously. This kind of talk leads to very, very, very dark places. Very dangerous places. I talked yesterday about the possibility that Donald Trump could suspend the 2020 election or postpone it. Several people sent me the tip of the hat and thank you to all of them, two of our program directors, in fact, of our radio stations. Uh, this CRS report, and somebody posted on Twitter too, the Congressional Research Service does research on behalf of Congress. So you have to be a member of Congress to ask them to do something, but they do, they do these research reports. And back in 2004, when there was some speculation because Bush and Cheney were starting to become very unpopular as a result of having lied us into the war, both wars actually, they lied us into the war in Afghanistan saying that it was the only way to go after bin Laden after Mullah Omar said he'd be glad to arrest bin Laden and turn him over to us. And then they lied us into the war in Iraq because you know Dick Cheney had been spending most of 2001 before 9-11 dividing up the oil fields with a bunch of oil executives. Cheney of course was the former head of Enron and George W. Bush himself is a former oil executive. He owned a little oil company in Texas. So anyhow, in July of 2004, the Congressional Research Service issued a report, you can uh, duck, duck, go it, titled Executive Branch Power to Postpone Elections. And I'll just, you know, cut right to the chase. They say that the president does not apparently, now keep in mind, when they, when they say apparently, that means <laughs> in Donald Trump's mind, that means, I don't care. Well, here's the actual language. The executive branch does not appear to currently have the authority to establish or postpone the dates of elections at either the federal or state level in the event of an emergency situation. However, however, Congress may delegate power to the executive branch so long as it includes standards set so that a court could ascertain whether the will of Congress has been obeyed. In other words, Congress has to explicitly say, we're giving this power to the president. They say under Article 1, Section 4, and under Article 2, Section 1, 
this would be constitutional. Thus, as long as the Congress sets standards for the executive branch to implement such a postponement, it would appear that Congress could enact a statute delegating the authority to postpone an election to the executive branch. And of course, once that's done, just like Congress delegated the authority to the president to fight wars against the people who attacked us on 9-11, this was in 2002, Barbara Lee was the only person in the House who voted against it. And that resolution has been used now for what, six wars? And Trump just used it to assassinate Soleimani? Bizarre stuff. But it gets even more bizarre when you ask Republicans about this. And this is from the Washington Post. This is from 2017, from August of 2017, but it's the Washington Post. Donald Trump has repeatedly said that he actually won the popular vote. Hillary Clinton did not win the popular vote by 5 million votes. No, Donald Trump won it because the 3 million vote margin that Hillary Clinton had, Trump said, was mostly attributable or is entirely attributable to, quote, illegals voting in the election, people who are here without documentation. And it turns out they did a, a study on thousands of Americans. It lasted from June 5th to June 20th of 2017. The sample was weighted to match the population of the United States in terms of sex, age, race, and education. The two questions they asked were, first, if Donald Trump were to say that the 2020 presidential election should be postponed until the country can make sure that only eligible American citizens can vote, would you support or oppose postponing the election? And then the second question that they asked was, what if both Donald Trump and Republicans in Congress were to say that the 2020 presidential election should be postponed until the country can make sure that only eligible American citizens can vote? Would you support or oppose postponing the election in that case? 47% of Republicans said that Trump won the popular vote. 68% of Republicans believe that illegal immigrants routinely vote, and 73% of Republicans believe that voter fraud is a serious problem and happens somewhat or very often. 73%. Now, can Trump postpone the election? 52% of the Republicans said that they support Donald Trump postponing the 2020 election. 56% said that if Congress goes along with it, they super supported. So a majority, a significant majority of Republicans support Trump and the Republicans postponing the election and a small majority of Republicans support just Trump postponing the elections. Because over on the Washington Post, they're reporting that sources within the Trump administration are saying that it's entirely possible that because of the dispute over the rules in the Senate about whether or not individual senators are going to have a chance to give floor speeches about supporting Trump or opposing Trump, whether they're going to drag, this is even without witnesses. They're saying that the, uh, the trial may last until next Wednesday. So Trump will not be able, if this happens, Trump will not be able to use the State of the Union address as a rally. And I think that there's enough Republicans who are uncomfortable with how he might do that. This is what I think is going on. The Democrats, of course, are fine with having the trial last longer. I think that some of the Republicans will go along with it because they are afraid. They know how unpredictable Trump is. They know what a narcissist he is. They know what a, what a crazy man. I mean, you know, last night saying the Democrats want to kill Republicans. I mean, Trump saying that. You know, they're afraid of what he might say at the State of the Union address. And so they want to, I believe, this is my opinion, I think it's the best explanation for the possibility that this might happen being leaked by the White House. And they wouldn't leak it unless they were pretty sure it was going to happen. I think they're just trying to, you know, get ahead of Mitch McConnell or take the sting off it so it doesn't look like McConnell is betraying Trump. I think that the Republicans are actually afraid of what he might do on Tuesday night with the State of the Union. And also, this is a way to, to screw you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Klobuchar, the Democratic candidates for president, who are stuck in the Senate. So it's kind of a twofer. Kate in Los Angeles. Hey, Kate, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? A couple nights ago, about 1030, 
I heard uh, what sounded like the beginning of like a political commercial. Mm-hmm. It had uh, you know that kind of generic music and everything, and then I heard "Make America Great Again." And then there were, like, salt-of-the-earth people saying, oh, my life has become so much better, I feel so much safer, with little interjections of, you know, more political music. Right. And I, it was a commercial for a Trumpy bear doll. Yeah, the Trump teddy bear that they're selling. Yeah. <laughs> I got a chill because I thought, yeah. my God. There oh, yeah. are adult people living doing Oh, across Germany throughout the 30s, people had Nazi flags in their windows and pictures of Hitler all over the place. This is called cult of personality, and it's neither healthy for democracy nor for individual mental health. Kate, thanks for the heads up on that. That's fascinating. Don in Vermilion, Ohio. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Trump is going to get totally forgiven by the Republicans because the two guys running against him, was it four states, I think, they wouldn't let him start working in or something that's right don't yeah. Even hear from yeah trump's so trump's he's, uh he's the only one running functionally you're absolutely right and you know bill weld is out there and and there's a couple other guys out there saying that they're republican candidates for president and it gets them on tv and you know it might revive their career a little bit or give them an opportunity to sell a book but there is no serious opposition to donald trump and in fact let me add to that just to add to the whole there is no serious opposition to trump people are wondering why is it that lamar alexander this morning He's the Republican senator from Tennessee who is sitting in the seat that was previously held by Howard Baker of Tennessee, Republican of Tennessee, who was the guy who famously said, what did the president know and when did he know it? Howard Baker, who started out as a shill for Richard Nixon. It was his intent to shill for Richard Nixon in the Senate. But when he heard the evidence, he said, holy cow, this guy is actually guilty. And he changed his mind and he became one of the advocates for impeaching or for removing Nixon from office if the trial ever got to the Senate. In any case, Lamar Alexander came out this morning and said that, yes, he acknowledges that the House impeachment managers have demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that Donald Trump tried to use, tried to extort or bribe Ukraine. And Alexander did not use language quite as inflammatory as what I'm using, but basically that the Trump tried to extort or, or bribe uh, Zelensky in the country of Ukraine to come up with a, an announcement of an investigation into Joe Biden because he thought that that would hurt Biden. That would be like Hillary's emails. And Lamar Alexander acknowledged that this morning, but he said, I'm still going to vote for acquittal because I don't think that that's an impeachable offense. And people are wondering, why the hell is he doing this? He's already announced he's retiring. He's leaving office. You know, uh, next January, he's going to be moving back to Tennessee and living there. And I can tell you why, why he's doing this and why the other Republican senators who are leaving office are also probably going to vote for Trump's acquittal. And it's because they're afraid. And they're afraid of the Trump fanatics with guns. Just let that sink in. They're afraid for their families. They're afraid for their future earnings potential, their careers. They're afraid that they'll be locked out of lobbying opportunities. They're afraid that, they'll be, that they won't be hired by the, by the big corporations that are very politically active and pay millions of dollars a year. But mostly they're afraid that crazies with guns are gonna come after them. Mark my words, this is gonna all come out. But this is what's going on. These guys, Trump has them whipped. He's got them living in terror, even the guys who are leaving. And if you look at at Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, they have to have security details. They They themselves are afraid. And they're still getting crap. And they're still getting threats. And so people like Lamar Alexander are looking around going, you know, Is it worth my wife getting death threats? Is it worth my children getting death threats? Is it worth having, you know, crazies with guns like showed up at the pizza parlor in in, uh, D.C. looking for Hillary's so-called pedophile? Is it worth having people with guns show up at our house? Is it worth getting yelled at in restaurants? I don't think so. So they're going to go along with the herd. This is exactly how people like Duterte in the Philippines, Modi in India, Hitler in Germany, Mussolini in Italy, 
Franco in Spain, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duda in Poland, Orban in Hungary. This is exactly how these guys made the transition from being an elected leader in a democratic republic to being the autocratic dictator of, of a failed democracy. This is exactly how it happens. We're watching it in real time. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And Lisa Murkowski just came out and said basically the same thing as Lamar Alexander. You're seeing people who are terrified. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest growing white collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. There's a new book out that you're going to want to check out. It's really great. It's The Populist Guide to 2020, A New Right and a New Left Are Rising is the title of the book. And it's by Crystal Ball and Sagar Njeti, if I'm saying that right. And on the line with us is Crystal Ball herself. Hey, Crystal. Great to have you with us. Hey, Tom. Great to be with you. And by the way, you, you nailed it. Sagar and Jetty, you got it perfectly. Great, thank you. <laughs> and by the way, I tweeted, for people who follow us on Twitter, I tweeted a short video from your show. You do a TV show every morning on Hill TV, along with Sagar, I believe. You did this deep dive into how the Democratic Party would react to a Bernie Sanders candidacy that I thought was absolutely screaming brilliant. You that know, means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Well, people need to go check it out. You've got a great show, and it was, it was a great rant. So let's get to your book, The Populist Guide of 2020. You talk about the new right and the new left are rising. Um, specifically, who are and what is the new left, and who are and what is the new right? Well, I think it's emerging as we speak. Part of why we really rushed to get this book out into the political process right now, because at our show Rising, we have a very unusual dynamic. You know, I'm on the populist left. I'm a sort of Sanders-type Democrat. I like all the anti-establishment candidates in the primary. Sagar is on this new populist right that's really trying to find its way that, look, yes, the most visible manifestation of right now is Donald Trump, but there's a whole movement there that doesn't agree with necessarily everything Donald Trump is doing. And essentially our thesis is, look, all the pundits got everything wrong in 2016, right? They didn't see Sanders coming. They didn't see Trump coming. They wrote off the whole thing right up until the election results smacked them in the faces. And there's been no self-reflection about how they were able to get things so wrong. Our thesis in the book is that you can't understand what's happening in American politics and accurately predict what is going to happen in American politics without digging deep into this populist anger that is animating politics right now here in this country and really truly around the world. So as we've been watching the primary unfold at our show Rising, we've been able to accurately predict a lot of the candidates that didn't catch on, the different coalitions that supported candidates in surprising ways, candidates who ultimately dropped out. We've been able to predict a lot of those movements and ultimately the surge of Bernie Sanders because we were fil filtering it through this lens of populism. So we wanted to lay it down into sort of lessons that you could look at and use to hopefully understand American politics a little better and predict what the future might look like. And you've done a brilliant job of it. We're talking Thank with you. Crystal Ball, the co-host of Rising on Hill TV, and the book is The Populist Guide to 2020. My theory on this, Crystal, and I'd love to get your response to this. In 1976, in a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo, the Supreme Court, for the very first time in the history of the United States, said that if a billionaire wants to put enough money into a politician that they essentially own that politician, that is no longer called corruption and it's no longer called 
called bribery. It's called free speech under the First Amendment. It's protected by the Constitution. Two years later, a yeah. decision called First National Bank versus Bellotti in 1978, the Supreme Court extended that logic to corporations. This caused a flood of big money to pour into the political process. The Democrats at that point were largely supported by the labor unions as they kind of ignored this, uh, at least until 1992 when, when Bill Clinton said, no, we've got to get in on this corporate money thing. The Democrats ignored it, but the Republicans put up a for sale sign because they were in the wilderness. Jerry Ford had lost the election to Jimmy Carter in 76. They were freaked out. And so the Republican Party came became basically the party of the billionaires and corporations totally sold out. And by 92, 93, Three, about half of the Democratic Party, in fact, arguably even three quarters at that time, I think it's about half now, decided to get in on the act and sell out. And the result of that is that Gillens and Page study in, in 2014 at Northwestern and Princeton Universities, where they found that over the last 20 years, roughly, since these two decisions, and they were amplified by Citizens United in 2010, basically over the last 20 years, the desires of the top 10% are likely to be made into legislation. The desires of the top of 1% are almost certainly made into legislation. The desires of the bottom 90% of Americans for the last 20 to 25 years, if you look at the statistics, the surveys and the legislation that's coming out, are about as likely to be made into law as random noise. And the, yeah. and the desires of the bottom 50% of Americans are less likely to be made into law than random noise. And voters have figured this out. And when, when Donald Trump said the system is rigged, he was right. And when Bernie Sanders said the system is rigged, he was right. And people are pissed off and they want their elected representatives to do what they want, not what the people who own them want. I lay all this at the feet of the Supreme Court, frankly, in the last book I wrote, you know, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. But, but that's my take on why this populist eruption is happening. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you. I think you nail it, right? It's pretty simple, ultimately. People are pissed off because Washington's not listening to them. And essentially, you have two parties that are fighting for who can do the most for the wealthiest and cut taxes the most for corporations. There's a mythology that Washington is gridlocked. And it does seem that way, especially if you watch, you know, the impeachment trial unfolding. But it's only an illusion because they are gridlocked on the things that you want them to be working on. When it comes to passing trade deals that decimated our country, when it comes to banking deregulation, when it comes to endless wars, there has been very much a bipartisan consensus in this town. So our book is about what if these parties realign to the point where instead of fighting over who could do the most and gain the most wealthy donors, what if the fight was over who could actually garner the support of the working class? How could we put the working class back at the center of power in D.C.? And, you know, Tom, you're right to point out, look, my expectations for the Republican Party are very low. They've, always, they've been part of the rich for a long time. I don't expect them to be the part of the people. But that's why I focus so much energy on the Democratic Party, because this is supposed to be the party of the people. And so when they realigned away from the working class, you basically left the working class with no real voice that would fight for their economic interests. So I think that's at the core of what this election is about. And I think it's at the core of why you have 70 percent of Americans who say they have a boiling anger at the political establishment. So our view is not a fringe view. It is, in fact, the mainstream view of the country, which is why your show is so popular and so su successful and important. It's why Rising has quickly found this unbelievably engaged audience. And this book, which, frankly, we put out without a big rollout, you know, we've got a little tiny publishing imprint that's backing us. No PR release, no galleys went out to anyone, skyrocketed to the top five in the nation on all of Amazon because of the energy of this movement and the desire for a non-corrupt form of politics that would center the working class. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. I think you've absolutely nailed it, too. Great show, Rising on Hill TV. They're both great. The Populist Guide to 2020, <laughs> A New Right and A New Left are rising by Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty. Crystal, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure. It's great having you on the program. And I wish you the very, very best. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. How's our uh, favorite Republican doing today, Kino? Yes, this is Kino from Lakeland with the Moose Herder Agenda and the Moose Herder Coalition Plan. And praise be for Free Speech TV and your program, Tom. Uh, Thank I you. Want, 
Democrats to take heart because, now, symbolically speaking, if the Republican senators polish the boots of President Trump today, we have the 25th Amendment to fall back on because, you know, a bully always gets worse if he's promoted and allowed to do his stuff. So Trump will get worse and do worse things, but we do have the 25th Amendment, and some of the Republicans will join the Democrats eventually to declare him unfit. So take heart in that, and I would like to offer three suggestions. Uh, Today, uh, when, when the vote is taken in the Senate. I want as many senators, uh, Republicans, Democrats, to chant the name of John McCain. Mm. Uh, the, the way Trump talked about uh, McCain reveals his true character. And that's what they need to be considering also is his character. So chant the name of John McCain often today, and they need to take a bottle of boot polish and if the Republicans win, then they need to give it to Mitch McConnell, because uh, that's what they're going to be, boot polishers. And also a, a card that says, Dear Leader, and that'll be a Trump card they can give right. to him, because that's going to give Trump his Trump card, a Dear Leader. Mitt Romney, he can be prime minister in the Senate. He can be have a coalition. He can supersede McConnell, because he can be prime minister of a coalition between Democrats and Republicans. And he needs to sing the praises of how Pence is going to be much better than Trump. Trump. Now, uh, Pence is very defective, and he'll be a temporary leader. Sure. But Mitt Romney, he can be prime minister now and praise how uh, temporarily, and this will be a cleansing and a purging. I hate to burst your bubble about the 25th Amendment, though. It requires the vice president to initiate the process, and a majority of the cabinet have to uh, petition. And if you think Wilbur Ross and Betsy DeVos. And it could include the president. It could Obama and, 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 and no, that's not that's not in the Constitution. But Kano, thank you for the call. I get it. I'm with you. Thank you, Ken in Woodbridge, Virginia. Hey, Ken, what's on your mind today? Thank I you. love your show. You can tell by now I've lost my voice from trying to explain things to Trump people. But I couldn't understand why when you try to talk about facts, it's like they just didn't care. It just dawned on me the reason why they don't care is. They're still fighting the Civil War. They lost oh, yeah. the Civil War. Yeah, the lost cause. And that's the reason why. I agree, and I think that there's probably a significant percentage of these armed white men who would actually like to bring back slavery. They would go back before the Civil War. But I think your point is well taken, Ken, and I, I don't disagree, and that's the thing that troubles me so much. Thank you for the call, and thanks for pointing that out. I just wanted to highlight something that is something that I just think is one of these like good things. Joe Madison, who is one of my colleagues on Sirius XM from 6 to 10 a.m. on the Urban Channel, which is, I think, 126 on Sirius XM, just an extraordinary man. His wife, Sherry, is an extraordinary woman, and they put together every single day one of the best radio programs in the country, period, full stop. And if you've never heard Joe's show, you need to check it out. Joe was on our program a week or so ago, on MLK Day, actually, and uh, was talking about this petition to rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Edmund Pettus was a screaming right-wing racist, and he was the head of the Klan in uh, Alabama or Mississippi. And we want to rename this bridge after John Lewis. You know, it just seems like a reasonable thing. So I just wanted to highlight that and tell you that you can go over to joemadison.com and get all the information on that and on Joe's show and, and on everything that Joe is up to because it's a worthy cause. Mike in Hope Sound, Florida. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's up? Tuesday, when that State of the Union address is supposed to go off, and I want to know your opinion if Democrats should even show up. I understand the reasoning by if you don't show up, but I think this time in this country... It'd be great if Trump was talking to his enablers and, and maybe some Supreme Court justices who want to sit there and look like potted plants. I know that the Democrats are not going to refuse to show up. There may be a few who will take a, a sort of principled stand, and there'll be a few who are out on the campaign trail and things like that. But that would be seen as, as disrespectful of the office as well as of the man. And, I mean, this is a constitutionally mandated requirement that every year the president report to Congress on the State of the Union. It doesn't require that it be a speech, but it requires that the president do this every year, so they're going to show up. Lydia in Port Angeles, Washington. Hey, Lydia, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's in your mind? My husband is the great-great-grandson of Chief Seattle. Wow. He's in 
a tribe called the Duwamish, which lost their federal recognition back in the early 70s, mid-70s, I think it was 74, the Bolt decision, Hmm. where they divided up all the shellfish rights and hunting grounds and everything between the different tribes. But whenever a tribe didn't have a reservation, they were told they didn't exist. Wow. So, yeah. So he lived till he was about the age of 17, getting a, a measly monthly check as a Duwamish person, and then it got cut off. Well, he's a half-breed, or a little less than half, I should say. Had a hard life because of it in many ways. And I opened up a Time Life book of the great chieftains in this whole series of books on Native Americans, and there's no mention of him even in there. Luckily, I had another little copy of a book just of the speech itself, and it's, it's so prophetic. It's such a vision, and he was so humble and yet trusting. But anyway, we were talking about, you were talking about treason yesterday, so I looked that up in the dictionary, and betrayal of trust. And it was so blatant with these people, and especially now. But anyway, going on and on. But I hope that you will consider when you're in Seattle to, you know, find out more about the chief because they put the seal of his face on all the city hall walls, and yet great grandfather. That's remarkable, Lydia. Thanks for the call. Thanks for the heads up, and and yes, I'll I'll look into that. Thank you very much. It's great talking with you. Have a great day. Thanks you too. Bye bye. You know, sometimes you need to give yourself a Valentine's Day gift. Here's my suggestion. Imagine Valentine's Day is here. You're parked outside the restaurant. You're meeting your date in 10 minutes. You glance in the mirror and you see your wrinkles and under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's my secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. That's the gift you give yourself. You apply the clear serum under your eyes, and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. Go to triplexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at triplexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code Voices. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at triplexiderm.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by N.B. Turner. It's titled, Is China an Imperialist Country? And it's from a, a relatively Marxist point of view. I think you'll find it fascinating. This is from the introduction. It has long been known and understood that the entire world has been under the control of capitalist imperialism. For a time, a section of this world broke from it, beginning with the victory of socialism in Russia and continuing through the Chinese Revolution, constituting a socialist world. Yet in time, the socialist countries, through internal class struggles in politics and economics, were seized by capitalist conciliators and advocates, and then by capitalists themselves, who were largely within the ruling communist parties themselves. First in Russia and later in China, when these counter-revolutions and coups took place, there ensued a period of entry and integration into the world imperialist system. The Soviet Union, at first under the existing signboard of socialism, continued much of its established national and economic power relations into a new socialist imperialist bloc, socialist in name, imperialist in reality. The Russian capitalist imperialist attempt to maintain this bloc, or important sections of what had been part of this bloc and its historic allies, has continued in the years since the socialist signboard was discarded. In China, the defeat of the proletariat and the capitalist capture of state power after the death of the great revolutionary Mao Zedong have also led to a period of integration into the world imperialist system. China still operates under a socialist signboard, but has conducted itself unambiguously as a capitalist power. Before the last decade, especially since the demise of the socialist bloc, the U.S. was commonly seen as the sole superpower to which all other powers had to defer. The system which the U.S. had designed at the end of World War II was global in scope and to some more democratic in appearance than the old colonial empires. But it was built around the elitist privilege of power and authority, meaning the U.S. as superpower was at the centerpiece of the controls. But in the last decade, the imperialist world system is not what it used to be. Throughout the world, corrupt and comprador regimes have faced significant and often unprecedented mass popular opposition movements, which have revealed the deep instability of the old neo-colonialist arrangements. 
Even in the EU, the product of imperialist designs to supplant the historic internecine battles, there has emerged ever-deepening crises and conflicts and movements to assert nationalist interests against one another. Forces worldwide are studying these changes and considering how they must change the set of options at hand. The all-too-prevalent view that U.S. imperialism is so powerful, so dominant, and so capable of manipulating all manner of forces and bending them to its will has been, and continues to be, a dangerous twisting of reality. The sole superpower in this view has been attributed with omnipotent features that defy effective challenge, that reflect a supposedly skillful control of contradictions and crises that afflicted earlier empires, and that has a boundless ability to disguise its malevolent work. If it were true, it would be a remarkable development in human history. Indeed, it would be as once touted in the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union in bloc by Francis Fukuyama, the end of history that is, the end of historical conflict and systemic changes. It would be an expression of the boastful and fanciful capitalist post-Mao motto, Tina, there is no alternative to capitalism. There are others who assert that the U.S. is not so omnipotent and that it is in decline and may be failing, but that the U.S. and its close allies constitute the only imperialism that matters and that if all its detractors, victims, opponents, and its imperialist rivals band together, liberation will truly be achieved with the demise of U.S. imperialism. This view also holds that whenever big powers like China or Russia rise in opposition to the U.S., they deserve the support and applause from progressive and revolutionary forces. Holding this view are a variety of forces who cling to the notion that the Cold War division of the world is still extant and that popular protests in recent years from Libya to Syria, Ukraine and Venezuela, as well as Brazil and Turkey, Iran, even inside Western China, are all examples of U.S. meddling and interference. This view holds that without such U.S. manipulation and interference and disruption, the people would, by and large, be happy or passive. This is by any measure an amazing claim, denying the existence of class contradictions and struggles within each of these countries and making it appear that the conspiratorial powers of the U.S. to manipulate events are unparalleled in reach and effectiveness. In practical political terms, this view distorts the basic reality that many regimes, bourgeois states that usually evoke one ethnic or religious or nationalist section of the people over others, aim to repress the sharpening class struggle and broad discontent and rebellion. The book N.B. Turner's Is China an Imperialist Country? Tom Hartman here with you. By the way, you know, we were talking in the last hour about the possibility of a pandemic of this coronavirus. It's a beta coronavirus, by the way. The common cold is a family called the alpha coronaviruses, and there's thousands or millions of variations of the common cold, which is why we are constantly getting, you know, rhinoviruses, these cold viruses that, that are a little different all the time. But, but the beta viruses are much more damaging. That's SARS and MERS. MERS is the one that is transmitted by camels. They're having a problem with it in Saudi Arabia right now. And then, of course, the Wuhan virus. So these are, these are all viruses. All the beta ones are viruses that actually originally uh, lived in animals. In the case of SARS, in the case of Wuhan, apparently bats. And in the case of MERS, camels. And they jumped to humans, which is, as I mentioned the other day, that's what you call a zoonotic disease. So as we're looking at the possibility of a pandemic or an epidemic in the United States or both, a worldwide pandemic, it's worth getting in the Wayback Machine and going back to May of 2018. Tip of the hat, by the way, to the person on Twitter who flagged this for me. It was uh, Jamil Smith. Well, actually, somebody retweeted his tweet. Let me see who that was. It was uh, Herbst Hahn. Thank you, Herbst. Back in May of 2018, Rear Admiral Timothy Zimmer, if I'm pronouncing it right, Z-I-E-M-E-R, uh, was the Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodefense at the National Security Council. He ran the team that was responsible for dealing with a pandemic in the United States. And this was, I believe this was originally put together back, you know, years earlier, almost a decade earlier in response to SARS. So we had this team in, inside the National Security Council that 
that was that was directly responsible for coordinating federal policy and federal state policy with regard to a pandemic or an epidemic or even you know bioterrorism what happened in may of 2018 in may of 2018 national security advisor john bolton disbanded the team it does not exist right now there's nobody in charge of pandemics the CDC, you know, they can look at the virus and say, oh, here's what it looks like. But they don't run U.S. policy. I mean, this is mind-boggling. In May of 2018, there was an article in The Independent, you know, the British newspaper, that said the breakup of his team comes at a time when many experts say the country is already underprepared for the increasing risks of a pandemic or bioterrorism attack. And here we are now, a year and a half later, Ronald Klain, who was the U.S. Ebola response coordinator from late 2014, now this would be the Obama administration, to early 2015, was chief of staff to both Al Gore and Joe Biden during their vice presidential terms. He says that Zimmer, the guy in charge of this team, was forced out by John Bolton. And you wonder if, uh, if this will be addressed in John Bolton's book. Patrick in Lakewood, California. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Netflix has a series in documentaries on pandemic, actually called Pandemic, How to Avoid an Outbreak. I'll have to check it out. Uh, you know, Louise and I will check it out maybe this weekend or something. Patrick, thank you for the call. Fascinating stuff. And Jason in Huntsville, Alabama. Jason, you're on the air. What's up? Don't you think people should know that in Wuhan, where it broke out, there's a biohazard level four facility that it could also have came from? I don't know if that's true or not, but it's pretty clear, I think, to most of the epidemiologists who are looking at this, that this came about as a consequence of a an air, you know, live animal, wild animal market. But... The thing is, there's a biohazard level four facility next to the market, eight miles from it. So yeah, I you know I'm not I'm not ready to go all conspiracy on this, Jason. And if the Chinese were going to use a bioweapon, I doubt they'd be using it against their own people. So I, I'm not all that concerned. Thanks for the call, though, Michael in Hammond, Indiana. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? You know, people have been eating animals for like forever. Yeah, but not so much wild animals. Generally, you know, outside of deer, which are virtually domesticated, we don't generally eat wild animals in the United States or in the West or in developed countries. It is in these developing countries. You see some of it in India, although they've killed off most of their wildlife there. The population is so dense. But in China and in some of the other Asian countries in particular, there's a long tradition of eating wild animals that we might not eat, you know, turtles and frogs and amphibians and bats and stuff like that. And they were selling bats and snakes in this open air market. And that's how this thing got out. But everything kind of started off wild, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, and we probably got a lot of diseases. You know, syphilis came from sheep, for example. I mean, you know, it's, it's there. There are there are diseases, and flu. Uh, flu came from, I believe, cows. I could be wrong, but flu came from from another mammal too. And in fact, there was no flu in the Western Hemisphere when the Spaniards came and started invading Central America. That's how they wiped out the Aztecs and the Incas when Cortez marched into Huatzal or however you say the capital city there for the Incan Empire. When he marched in, more than half the population was dead. And the emperor had lost all credibility with his people because he was thought to be a deity. But how could a deity let half his people die? Because they'd literally never been exposed to the flu, whereas Europeans had been exposed to the flu for a long, long time because they domesticated whatever it was. I'm pretty sure it was cows. Tuberculosis, I think, came out of cows also. So, you know, over time, we've gotten used to some of these zoonotic diseases, but new ones pop up. And in Nature Today, in the science publication, 
I get their daily newsletter, and, and they pointed out that as, as humans push into wild areas where there's never been humans before, and they start destroying the integrity of those areas, those animals that are living in those areas who are infected with diseases that we haven't seen before, they have to go someplace else or they get or they die out we eat them and then the disease has to find a new host and in the case of this particular virus that new host is us show us the education tom thank yeah, you a lot. thank you michael good talking to you rosemary in boise idaho hey rosemary what's on your mind today Hello, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, hey, I um, heard there was nobody heading up the CDC just a few moments ago on your show. Also about oh, that was not boys. the CDC. That was the office of, uh, I don't have it right in front of me now any longer, but it was part of the National Security Council, and it was an office that specifically dealt with epidemic diseases. The CDC is, oh, okay. uh, to the best of my knowledge, running just fine. Although I don't know if Trump has permanently appointed a head to the CDC or not, but they're they're doing okay. Okay, well, still, it's a pretty important department with this coronavirus yes. uh, spreading around. My question was, with the bullet young boy, the article in the Lancet, who didn't show the symptoms for quite some time, and then the plain load of people coming back from the area in China where the disease is, and now I heard on the news they're only going to be held for three days in quarantine. I wonder who makes that decision, and is three days long enough? Three days is not long enough. The latency period or the incubation period for this virus appears to be between two and 14 days, depending on the person and probably the, the vitality of their immune system. That 10-year-old boy that was reported in the British medical journal, The Lancet, uh, three days ago, uh, he never showed symptoms, but he was shedding viruses like crazy. Exactly. So he was highly contagious. We don't know if he's uh -huh. going to be contagious for a week or two or for the rest of his life. And I mean, we're just, there's so much we don't know about this virus that we're just starting to learn. It's, it's a virus that literally the, the human race had never seen before. There was no precedent for it. And, exactly. and the Chinese have uh, released the uh, genome of the virus, but they have not provided any actual samples of the virus to any researchers around the world. There is a group of researchers, I believe in Australia or in Europe, I'm not sure which, that just grew it in culture, in cell cultures. And they're making them available to researchers with the idea that maybe we can develop a vaccine or we can, you know, mm -hmm. an animal model is yeah. learn, you know, more about how this thing works and what the deal is. But I didn't know it was only a three-day quarantine. I, you would think that at least a two-week quarantine would be necessary. Exactly. That's what I thought, too, you know, and it just seems pretty concerning who is making that decision to only hold them for such a short time. And then... Right. You know, they go out. Well, maybe they're looking they at this and saying, well, we've only got a 3% mortality rate. So, you know, if it was unleashed on the world, you know, 3% of 7 billion people would be 210 million. And that's not that many people. So what the heck? This is not as deadly as the Spanish flu was. Although the Spanish flu, I mean, now some of these bodies that are thawing out of the permafrost up in Northern Europe are found to have the Spanish flu. So, I know, I heard that on the show the yeah, other day. Yeah, I, that was pretty it's, amazing. It's, it's crazy stuff. The, yeah, so, yeah. you know, get some good hand soap. <laughs> Rosemary, thank you for the call, and thank you for watching us on YouTube. Tom Harmon here with you. Kevin in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Wikipedia's got a couple of pretty good pages on the Wuhan coronavirus. Okay. And they each have a bar chart that shows day-by-day -day number of confirmed cases. And you can see at a glance that this is exponential growth with a two-day doubling time. Yeah, we're looking at what's called amplification. Yeah. And it so, hasn't slowed so down. So you look at one bar, you look at the one two days later, it's twice as long. All right. Um, and this is you the, don't need a mathematical analysis. It's just you can just see it. Yeah, and this is the old story of the fellow who did a favor for. I've heard the story told in a Middle Eastern context for some Arab potentate, and I've heard it in the in the kind of medieval context. And the leader said, "Oh, I'm very grateful to you. How can I reward you?" And the guy said, "Well, if you just take a chessboard." 
you know, 64 squares on it, and on the first square put one grain of rice and on the, or wheat, and on the second square put two grains, and then double, third square would be four grains, and then the fourth square would be eight, and then the fifth square would be 16, and just keep doing that until you get all the way to the 64th square. That'll be fine, or one penny, you know? And it turns out that by the time you get to the 64th square, and this is amplification, it's what you're talking about, there would be more wheat than there are all the wheat in the world, it, it, more than all the grains of sand in the oceans. It's just, you know, the numbers just get mind-boggling as you start doing that. And of course, you know, this is how epidemics happen. Our hope has to be, and Kevin, thank you for the call, our hope has to be that the people in China, that the public health authorities in China, and the government of China are going to work together to try to nail this thing down. But they now have 56 million people under quarantine. And, you know, while I have a concern about the public health piece of this, I also have a concern about the economic impact of this. Back in the 1980s, when the Reagan administration and the Bush administration made the decision to abandon Alexander Hamilton's program to develop manufacturing in the United States and allow corporations, American corporations, to become multinational corporations and as multinational corporations to do their manufacturing in cheap labor countries all over the world in order to lower their labor costs. And of course, for Reagan and Bush, a large part of this was destroying the labor union movement in the United States. Um, you know, if you, if you do away with unionized jobs, you do away with the union. It's just that simple. Those people, you know, they no longer have a good union job making cars in Detroit, and so now they're trying to, you know, they're all competing for a job at McDonald's, Walmart, or whatever it may be. And so when Reagan and Bush made this decision, and then Bill Clinton signed on to it in 92 and continued it with NAFTA and then the World Trade Organization and on and on it went, right? And now we have CAFTA and, and just all these free trade deals. When the neoliberal politicians decided to do this, Republican and Democratic, what they did is they bought the United States into the idea of an integrated world in terms of trade and manufacturing. And the argument that they made to sell this back in the day was that this would be a good thing, that this would be a good thing for every country, and in particular that it would reduce the probability of war. And this was also the rationale behind the European Union. Because if countries are completely dependent upon each other or interdependent on each other for simple things like manufacturing simple products, you know, in order to make a car, you know, a third of that car is coming from Mexico and a third of that car is coming from China right now for so-called American-made cars. Their theory was, well, we're not going to have a war with Mexico and we're not going to have a war with China. And we have had wars with both those countries. You know, not world wars, but we've actually gone to war against each one. We, the Western world. And, you know, it sounds good, but I think Alexander Hamilton was right, that every nation really needs to be resilient. Every nation needs to be able to source its own stuff, at least for the core stuff, at least for the stuff that's vital for the quality of life of the citizens and for the security of the country. And we now can't make a cruise missile without ships from China. We, you know, our clothing is coming from China. Our, I mean, look around you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a computer monitor in front of me that was made in China. I'm, I'm looking at a table that was made in China. I'm looking at a camera that was made in China. Or actually, it was made in Japan, but the same thing. In fact, it may have been made in China. It's a Sony, but, you know, which is a Japanese brand, but they manufacture in China, too. What's going to happen? Wuhan is the Detroit of China. It is a major manufacturing center. And when they stop making things there, and when trade in China starts slowing down or even stopping because the truck drivers aren't moving the trucks anymore, what's going to happen here in the United States when half the stuff in Walmart is no longer there? And not just Walmart, pretty much every store. What's going to happen? I think that it's going to be a huge hit, not just to our economy, but I think we could be looking at a worldwide slowdown, a worldwide recession that could be very consequential politically. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Our free Hartman Report podcast recaps the show every day. It's available wherever you find great podcasts. Tom Hartman here with you. Tom in Newport, Oregon. Hey, Tom, what's up? Have you ever seen the movie? I think Brad Pitt was in it. It was called Containment. 
or something like that. I've seen a couple the, of these, you know, kind of apocalyptic, uh, uh, you know, right, virus goes nuts movies. I something like what's going on right now. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it was about a bat feces mixing with a pig. Right. Sean says the movie is called Contagion. Contagion, yes. Matt Damon. I, Matt Damon, yes. I knew it was go. one of those guys, but yeah, yeah, that was a frightening <laughs> movie, man. That, that was. I think everybody should see that movie and give them a good idea what could really happen. Yep. So, well, I get, get ready. I mean, we're we're on the edge of this right now. Thank you, Tom. Tom in Madison, Wisconsin. Tom, what's up? Yeah, hi. During the George W. Bush administration, they game played what a pandemic would do in this country using top government and business leaders. This exercise was supposed to last for three days, but they call it off after the first day because everything fell apart. Maybe you could check that out. Well, we have no national security health infrastructure. We have no national health care infrastructure that can be centrally controlled in any way or, or directed or guided. So anything that we do... That was part of the problem, but there was still chaos, breakdown in food deliveries power failure, everything. everything well, and that's what they're going to start seeing in Wuhan. You've got now 56 million people in this quarantine, and they're going to start getting hungry. I mean, it's going to get bad. It's going to get real bad. And I don't think it's going to work. This virus is, may end up becoming part of the new normal, and uh, we'll see. But and, and I wouldn't freak out about it. There, there's still a long way to go before it's anything like that, but the, there is a serious problem in China. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport, so get out there, get active, tag your it, and tell your friends where they can find progressive media. Please. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 